ready to get started again. We are picking up on page three in your outline. It'll be at the bottom of that page, section number two on hell, which I've labeled, Why Hast Thou Forsaken Me? So we shift, we've shifted uh, on the diagram to everything kind of below the line. Can you hear me? Yes. Working okay? Yes. Yeah. Well, I might just sound funny. <laughs> okay. We'll say some things about that condition. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's also apparently worth giving consideration to because the Lord does speak a lot of it or warns of it quite regularly. And the Lord doesn't ever speak of things or warn of things that aren't meant to be a benefit to us and not usually to other people but to us and so just any discussion of hell like this um, his descriptions of it in particular and it's where we get descriptions of hell chiefly from the lord himself um, need to be considered simply that that they that they're designed for our benefit in some way or another and so they're worth considering so uh, uh, Letter A, for starters, is how long, and the answer is eternal. How long is hell? How, what's, the, what's the threat there or the warning? That is that the punishment is, in fact, very terrible, and it's also eternal. This is just over against any number of different voices, both ancient and modern, that would suggest in some way, typically Christian voices, that would suggest that they can't conceive of a punishment like this that would go forever and ever and ever. It's just simply too horrific, and they believe it's outside of the Lord's character, that it would go on forever. In my experience, the reason I think that most people claim that they don't think that hell could exist for some time, but not go on forever and ever and ever, is because they believe that that punishment is by nature outside or does not fit with the crime. It's, it's beyond the crime. You can't. And God would not punish beyond whatever crime has been committed or whatever sin we've committed. That's only true in this sense, as I said earlier. It's only true in the sense that I think that hell is beyond how guilty I feel myself to be. But I don't, I don't feel myself to be as guilty as I truly am according to the word of God. Um, actually, according to the Bible, I'm far worse, far, far worse and what I can feel about myself. We'll get to passages later on. But for now, just on the face of it, the Lord is the one that teaches the extent of hell. And here's how he says it, Matthew 23, verse 33. Snakes, sons of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? There is judgment, and no one can escape. This is not an escapable. It's an eternal um, judgment. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says, and he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Key word there, for our purposes, is eternal. Mark 9, page 4 here. Mark 9, 43. I don't know why I've got it marked as five verses. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter, the, to enter life maimed with two hands uh, to go, than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. So that just is a simple indication that it is eternal. I want to be really, really careful 
whenever I just get concerned when people start to hedge on the eternalness of hell. Most of the time in the Bible, the eternalness of hell is set right alongside of and in parallel with the eternalness of, of heaven. You start to hedge on the permanence of hell, you start to hedge, it seems to me, on the permanence of, of heaven. You can't have a way to do one without the other. So letter B, is it justified really? And the answer is yes, it must be. I have a quote here from the Small Call Articles. Uh, this hereditary sin, that's original sin, what we've inherited, is so deep and horrible a corruption of nature that no reason can understand it. But it must be learned and believed from the revelation of the scriptures. I find that to be just such a profound, profoundly helpful insight from the Small Call Articles. What that's saying is that while I can gain some sense of my guilt of my actual sins, I feel oftentimes I am driven into the ground by how many things I've done wrong or some serious mistake or sin or failure that I've committed. And it is horrible. And yet the Bible teaches that, in, that original sin is not actually a thing that I can get to the bottom of and entirely feel. I'm really just feeling the outer extents of my guilt. For, for, but that, in fact, the true guilt of my original sin, God has been pleased to cover. He makes it so that I can't feel it. He gives me, in a sense, numbness, a holy and blessed numbness to how bad I, in fact, really am. Sometimes people believe that the deeper down into their heart they get, the better it will get. Down deep inside, he's a good guy. If you could look down into his heart, he's a good guy. But the Bible actually teaches the opposite, that if you got down into my heart, the deeper you get, the deeper and the, the, the worse it is. So that if you were to peel layer after layer after layer off of my heart, the harder and harder it gets to look at. And that if I could see it, I don't know if I'd be able to survive. Well, I, if, if, so, for, so, so God hides it. I don't know if I could have enjoyed lunch today. I don't know if I could ever enjoy a breath or a cup of coffee or anything in this life. I don't, if I knew how bad my condition was, because and God wants me to enjoy coffee and this life and my children. So he just doesn't let me feel it. Instead of letting me feel it, he tells me about it. He says, you've got to trust me on this. Just trust my word. It's bad. You know how bad it is? Here's what it deserves. It deserves everlasting judgment and condemnation. Everlasting. That's what it's deserved. I'm not going to make you endure that. I'll have my son endure it. And I'm not even going to make you feel it. Now the result of that is that oftentimes people are, they don't think things are that bad. So they judge God. They hold him accountable for, for hell. I can't ever believe in a God who would do something like this. But the reason they would say that is because they don't actually know how, how, how bad it is. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We can't. But the Lord can. And he, he's known our condition and he, in fact, and his son has endured it. Okay, so what is it? What is how? Um... I always remember this quote from C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain, quote, we know more, uh, much more about heaven than about hell. 
for heaven is the home of humanity and therefore contains all that's implied in a glorified human life. But hell was not made for men. So I find this to be true in the Bible. There's very few descriptions of hell that you can get your hands around really easily. Uh, and that's just because it's not a place that we were meant for. It's tough to imagine. It's tough to get. get heaven is what we were made for. So that's e that should be easy to imagine. I think God has made us with a capacity for heaven and therefore a capacity to imagine it. But hell is more challenging. So it won't take as long. Definition of hell. The perceptible absence and also anger of God forever. That's the definition of heaven. It's the very opposite. It's perceptible presence, but also approval of God forever. That's a big difference. Some descriptions of hell. Uh, most of these, I believe, are coming from the Lord himself. I mean, directly from his mouth. Letter A, darkness in more places than one. Letter B, no rest. in the conscience. Letter C, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's terrible. Weeping is an image of sadness. Gnashing of teeth is anger, as I, I put on here. That's what people who are angry uh, will clench. That's what you're getting here. Clenching. I don't think it's gnashing of teeth as in pain. I think gnashing of teeth is an indication of anger. This, then what that would mean is that every time that we kind of cave into anger and retribution and lose our temper, in a, in a sense we're participating in a small way in, in what the people in hell are enduring forever. The description of hell is anger, angry people. And then Luke 16, 19 to 31, I don't think I told you, it might be helpful to have a Bible. I know that you have some few Bibles in front of you, and I already stole one of yours. So if you take a, just a, a second or two, you might grab a Bible and look up Luke 16. Luke 16, 19. I'll start reading it, and you can, as you open up to it, you can catch up with me. The descriptions that I'm after are later on. So I'll start at 19, though. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, the rich man also died and was buried. Have you see that he's buried? So he's, that his body was handled in that way. So any further description of the, of the rich man has to be a description of his soul. This is why I'd say this is an intermediate state description of hell. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here 
and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said that I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So some observations just on the subject of hell here, and I've listed them for you. The first, these are not words that are used very frequently in the Greek. I looked them up. Uh, the first word there is torment and agony. You can see them in those two verses, 23 and 24. Again, this is a parable of Jesus. That's who we're hearing this from. He the Lord apparently wants us to know that the rich man suffers these things. He didn't tell us. He's not wasting his breath. He wants us to be aware of this. This is, this is intended to strengthen us. So first, uh, torment and agony. Verse 23, I didn't pick up on this. Uh, he looked up. So it's in some sense he can see, and I know that hell is darkness, but in some way, he has a, a, a capacity to see. Remember I told you earlier, I don't want to push Lazarus and the rich man too much because it is a parable. It, does, it, it seems, though, that we might be able to draw from this that some sort of capacity for vision or something like that in hell. So still the same guy, isn't he? Still the, still, it's still the rich man. There's no substitution here. It's continuous. So... Um, uh, next one, call, they called to him. So in, at least as it's being depicted here, that rich man is able to talk in hell, even in Hades, in the intermediate state somehow. Also in verse 24, what's being described as thirst. Isn't that interesting? I don't know how he could be thirsty, but that's the way it's described. I'm so thirsty, which is just a tip of, just a little drop of water would be helpful. So thirst Verse 24, also, I'm in agony in this flame. So fire. Can I uh, pause just a second? We've had now descriptions like fire, flame, thirst, darkness, etc. I, th I, I, I don't know. I, don't, I think I can say cert with certainty that in hell the, that the people in fact endure literal flames or literal darkness or literal thirst, they might. I'm not positive if this is meant to be taken figuratively or if it's meant to be taken literally. I just am not sure. I don't know as far as its effect if it matters that much. If it's simply figurative, the Bible, when the Bible gives a figure the reality is not then less than the figure, but is more, or in this case, is worse. We don't take comfort from the fact, if I, if I say, well, we're supposed to be suffering, it says in hell we'll be suffering fire, flame. If somebody says, yeah, but that's not to be taken literally, actual hell's not really going to be have fire. Actual, after all, how can you have darkness and fire at the same time? Fire gives light. So it doesn't make it. This is just figurative. It's just, it's merely figurative. But that doesn't solve our problem. Because if it's a figure, then that means that the reality is worse than. And I don't want the figure. 
I surely wouldn't want the, the reality. I don't know what to conclude on this, though. I think that's an open jury. You all can give your suggestions if it, if it matters that much. In, in, in verse number 25, Lazarus says, remember that in your lifetime, he points out, you received good things. You remember Lazarus. He remembers his name. He remembers, so can he remember his former life in hell? Apparently, he has capacity for remembrance. Verse 26 says, a great chasm has been fixed. Now, so not only is there a great chasm between Lazarus and the rich man or between heaven and hell, but that that chasm has been fixed, so it's not passable. It's, it's permanent, that chasm. Is. So there's no, the Bible gives no sense that this penalty is reversible. And then finally, in verse 30, you, you notice the rich man's um, response to Abraham's preaching. Abraham says, well, they have the Bible, Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. Let your five brothers pick up the scriptures and make use of them. Now, if, they, if his five brothers had the scriptures, what that, that means is that the rich man, while he was in this world, also had the, had the scriptures. And remember what he called Abraham? He called him Father Abraham, which means that the rich man, this is sobering, isn't it? The rich man believed that he was a son of Abraham. He, he, claimed to, he claimed to have God on his side. And yet, though he claimed to have God on his side, how, what was his thoughts, feelings about the word of God in this life? Must, must not have thought very highly of them, and he doesn't afterwards either, and that's my point here. So when Abraham said, they got the scriptures, Scriptures are powerful. They change hearts and courses and lives. They give faith. Let them hear the scriptures. And that rich man is in hell because he did not, he was unwilling to hear the scriptures. And still in hell says, no, the scriptures don't work. That won't work. That's not enough. They're going to need something more. They need a miracle. They need some show of power. I just conclude from this that the same impenitence that got him in hell does not just suddenly waft away when he's there in hell. He's still in hell claiming that he doesn't deserve to be here. I was not given enough warning. You, you God, could have done a miracle and kept me from this place, but you didn't. I am angry. I am both sad and angry, and I don't... He's, so notice here, hell is not apparently designed to give penitence. Still, he's still impenitent. If I, and what that would mean, I suppose, is even if he had a second chance, even if somebody came down to preach to him and said, well, this is your chance, you just now repent, that even still, even in hell, he would maintain his righteousness and his impenitence. It's terrible. Okay, on then to the most, what I think to be the most important description of hell, and that's the only person in this life that's ever actually endured it. And that's the Lord Jesus himself. I think this is one of, one of the, if not the most important things, as far as understanding what the Lord has done for us, uh, phrases in all the Bible. And that's from Matthew 27, 46. This is the source of this statement. Uh, David is not the source. Psalm 22 is not the source. Jesus is the source of this statement when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's in the, 
there, there is a period of time while uh, on the cross, the Lord's on the cross for six hours. I think, I don't know this for sure, but I think that it's during the three hours of darkness. I'm told there that the final three hours, that it's darkness over all the land. That's profound. That's incredible. I don't know if we often think about that. That darkness apparently spreads throughout the entire region, if not the entire world. Um, we've done some research and it indicates that about this time there was in fact some sort of quote eclipse over the entire, well. So during three hours, there is darkness at which point I, it's, I conclude that Jesus on the cross is in fact enduring the penalties of hell. In the fullest extent of what hell can throw at a person, they're throwing at him, they're on the cross. What this means is that <clears throat> Jesus didn't die and then descend into hell. After his death, he, his, he goes to the Father's hand, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It's when he's risen from the dead in his body that he descends into hell, and not for the purpose of suffering hell, but for the purposes of declaring victory over hell. He did, in fact, though, go to hell or endure hell, and that would be during what I think to be those three hours. You, you can argue with me on that. Maybe it's not just the exact hours of darkness. But there is a period of time where he simply says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Now, that, well, he, 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 that is Psalm 22, verse 1. It's in the Old Testament. I would just challenge the conclusions You'll even get this in the study Bible, different Lutheran study Bible and things. I would challenge the conclusion that Jesus is quoting the Old Testament here. I think it's the other way around. I don't think Jesus is quoting David. David, in fact, is quoting Jesus. We're told that Jesus says this in Aramaic. If he was quoting David, he would have quoted him from, from Hebrew, which is the way he'd have learned it. That's because Jesus is not quoting. He's actually speaking. This is real. That's my point. When he says, why have you forsaken me? Um, we wouldn't want to conclude, well, you know, David went through a rough patch in his life, and he really felt like God was distant and forsook him, and so he asked, why have you forsaken me? David would never pray that. That is not a prayer. To be very honest with you, if you're praying the 22nd Psalm, you need to just be aware that you are not, this is not the sentiments of a common Christian. You're praying the prayer of Jesus upon the cross. And you just need to be aware of that so that you don't think that, you, that it's ever appropriate, ever, for anybody, Christian or non-Christian, in this life, ever, to pray, my God, why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? And that's because he never has. That would be false. Nobody, in the way that Jesus is, has been forsaken by God. I admit that you can feel that. There's times where the Lord will permit you to feel as though he's distant. It's false. He never is distant. He is never angry with you in this way. Except for one person. One time in this life has he ever forsaken somebody, and that's Jesus. Jesus stands alone. David was not forsaken. So this is real. It's not mere sentiment. He's not quoting David. <clears throat> no one's ever been forsaken. Let her be. Even more devastating, I think, just in meditating upon this. Get just it's such a fearful thing. The question that Jesus asks, he, he, he asks a question. He doesn't make a statement. He doesn't say, well, 
on being forsaken. He asks, why? If this is a prayer, it's an honest prayer. He doesn't, if he's asking, why have you forsaken me? He does not know. Otherwise, he wouldn't ask. He doesn't know why he's being forsaken. I know what I'd like to say. If I was there and I heard him say, why have you forsaken me? I'd say, I know, I know, I can tell you all the information here. What's happened here is that you've absorbed all of my sins and guilt. And they have been horrific. And they're now upon you. And therefore, you're being punished for what I deserved. What I should be going through, you're now going through. That's the reason. How, how do you not know that? You're Jesus. You are the Lord. What are you? How come I'm having to tell you this? And yet it seems that this is a moment for a few hours there where even the Lord doesn't know what's happening. Now, why would that be? This is a, um, an extension. You, you, you might remember from your catechism class, the Lord has, uh, the, in his incarnation, has his state of humiliation and his state of exaltation. You remember those categories? Those are helpful for this reason. The Lord's state of humiliation is that while, as a man in this life, as a man, Though he has two natures, divine and human, and that he's always those two natures. He's never sort of partially uh, divine or something. He's fully divine and fully human, and they never come apart from one another. Nevertheless, the divine nature has a way, this is a terrific mystery, but the divine nature has a way of withholding abilities uh, or prerogatives or even knowledge from the human nature. It's, it's, it's incredible. Do you remember when Jesus is um, in the garden and he prays, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But I know it's not possible. Of course this is not possible. Why are you praying if it's possible? There's no other way. If there was a way, then that's what God would have done, but there's no other way. Why then does he say, if it's possible, Lord? That's the prayer of a man who seems to not know all the possibilities. So I admit to you, this is, this is tremendously mysterious. But there are times when Jesus does not allow himself the full use of his omniscience, including math, who touched him when he went by, somebody touched me on my... And even including the reason that he's come into the world and his divine purpose and mission. He can withhold from himself, apparently, a knowledge of why he is here, temporarily. Now, in his state of exaltation, he always and fully uses his divine prerogatives and knowledge and such, as, according to his human nature, or in his incarnation. So he's not in a state of humiliation anymore, but in that time period, that's, what, that's the way it would be. Well, what we find here at the depths of his humiliation on the cross is that the divine nature, which is omniscient, is not permitting the human nature any memory whatsoever of his divine, even person and his divine mission. He calls him, get it, when, he, when he's hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive me. And they don't know what they're doing. He calls him what? Father. Because he is the, he's the son. At the end, 
after the, after the entire payment has been paid, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He calls him Father because he's the Son. But in the middle, he says, my God. He does not address him any longer as the Father, and I would suggest to you that that's because he's even denied himself a remembrance of his place in heaven eternal. All he knows himself to be is a, is a Christian. He trusts, his, he trusts God. He trusts his Father, always has, who's never sinned. I've only ever perfectly loved you and trusted you and feared you. And here I hang, having been utterly forsaken by you. I'm experiencing nothing but your anger. Though I have not done anything to deserve this, and I know it. I know it. Why are you doing this to me? That's his prayer. But it makes no sense to him. I know why. I could tell him. But in that moment, God himself does not. I mean, I should say, Jesus himself doesn't know. Why not? Why, why doesn't God just say, just remember, you're, you're doing this because you're going to have a church. You're, you're doing this to save the people. They're, all their sins are going to be gone. You're doing this so that they can go to heaven. They can have an inheritance. And yet, he can't know that. Not at that moment. Why not? He said. It would be God's presence. It would be a Yes, it would be a taste of something. He has God's presence. Um, I know he has God's presence. Being forsaken by God isn't necessarily the same as being left by him. What, what Jesus has experienced isn't just God's forsaking him, but God's anger. This is over sin. Can God be angry about sin? Wrathful? Yeah, he can. Yeah, and that's what Jesus is experiencing. God's utter displeasure because of sin. It's not his, but mine. So he can't know something. There's something he can't know. What, what, he, what he can't know <coughs> is that it's, that it's temporary. From, uh, so from the Lord's perspective on the cross, he thinks this is eternal. If, if he knew what was happening, he'd know he's paying for sins. And it's going to last a while. And he'll be able to say, it is finished. All sins have been paid for. The people have heaven to look forward to. If he knew it was, if he knew it was temporary, then that'd be like a, a taste of, of comfort, of hope. He'd have a little bit of, of hope. You can do a lot with hope. A lot. I remember one time I had a, did something, tweaked my back or something like this. It was the worst pain I've ever felt. It wasn't that bad, but it was. But I knew one thing. I knew that Advil would help it. Four Advil. And I put the Advil in, and the pain didn't go away, but it felt different. Instantly, as soon as I took the Advil, I had what? Hope. Okay, I can. On here, because I know 
it's, it's coming. It's going to get better. The Lord has to be denied that on the cross. There can be no hope that it's going to get better. Why not? Because the thing he's paying for is hell. And a payment of hell is hopeless. If I'm in hell, there is no light at the end of the tunnel. It must be nothing but darkness forever. And it's for that reason that the Lord Jesus on the cross has to be able to look out into the future and see nothing but darkness. No taste of hope. No, this isn't going to last that long. I'll just hang in there. This is forever. And only questions is what he asks. The, the, the reason for this is because he has to... The, 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 what he's enduring is what's called the cup of God's wrath, which he must drink down to the dregs. He's got to, he can't, if there's any hope <clears throat> or any sliver of comfort left for the Lord, any of that is at our expense. If he leaves some material at the bottom that he doesn't fully get consumed, whatever's left at the bottom of that cup of wrath, whatever he doesn't drink, I have to drink. And what he just took the whole cup of, I can't drink one drop of. I can, I can accomplish nothing in that way. So I need him to, to, to go through this with, utterly without hope. And that's what's happening. Okay. He asked why, in the state of humiliation, does not remember his divine mission, bereft of hope, he knows he's innocent. And then finally, the letter C, it, it worked. It was working. See, if the, the people in hell <coughs> don't have an ability to actually pay for their sins, they are paying for their sins, but they can't make the payment. So it's a, it's a payment that's forever being paid, but never satisfied. They're, they're forever working, but they can never say it is, it is finished. And that's why hell has to be eternal, because the people that go there don't have any capacity to pay for it. It's like, it's like interest. It, it, you, can, you can make your payments, but if the interest rate is too high and the amount is too much, it's just going to grow and grow and grow. It's a bottomless pit. They're paying, but they'll never be done. The Lord, the Lord suffered for about, I think, on the cross here, three hours. Why is it that the people in hell have to suffer for an entire eternity? But the Lord on the cross only suffered for about three hours. It's the difference is because the Lord was paying it. I couldn't have paid my own guilt for all. I could have taken it to eternity. I can't get it done. He can pay for all of mine and yours and the entire world's guilt. When he was suffering, since he's the perfect sacrifice, he can get it done. Every minute is payment happening. He's lapping it up, accomplishing it, finishing it. So he get done, he can say, it is, it is finished. This is why afterwards he says, I thirst, it is finished, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Each of the three, Jesus said seven things on the cross, seven before, or excuse me, three before, three after. The middle one is, why have you forsaken me? On either side, the concerns are not as grave as that middle one. This is why we deduce this. He's concerned about other things. Before, the, the, pay, the payment of hell, uh, uh, he, he takes care of his mother, remember, get, assigns his mother, mother's care to John. He forgives the, the men's sins. Um, at the end, after the payment is complete, he says, I'm thirsty. 
<laughs> he was thirsty the whole time, just for your information. He's terribly thirsty the entire time, but he doesn't say it because when you're suffering the payment of God's wrath, anything in your body that you're suffering is minor. If I can say this with all reverence and forgive me. But what the Lord was suffering in his body upon the cross in that horrific manner was minor in comparison with what he was suffering from the Lord's anger and hell on that cross. So while he's enduring the Lord's anger, his bodily pain is of minor concern. It's only a concern insofar as it's an indication of the Lord's anger. Okay, he'll say, I'm emaciated. I can see all my bones. Why are you so angry with me? That's the point. But then at the end, he says, you know, I'm thirsty. That is so beautiful to me. Because what it means is that he's now become concerned with a new thing. Which means the thing he was concerned with, he's not anymore. He says, I, look, the worst thing that's happening to me right now is that I'm just so thirsty. It's horrible. His thirst is just grinding away at him. And yet, if you were to look, I think, if, I'm looking, if I was at the foot of the cross there watching, I just think there's a point at which his face is, I think there's a point at which I could perceive while still in his physical misery, spiritually speaking, everything lifts for him. And the payment is made, and he must have a look of peace in his eyes. Ah, I'm thirsty. Give me something to drink. Ah, I think the reason he says I thirst is because he has something he needs to say, and if, if you're that thirsty, you can't make your, he wants to say it plenty loud, and he can't make his throat make the noise. If he doesn't have just a lid, he needs something to... And the thing he wants to say is, so that everybody can hear him, is, it is finished. I want to make sure you can hear me when I say this. It is fin What's finished? Now, his life isn't finished. What's finished is the payment. It's the suffering of hell that he was going through. And then says, Father, before, my God, my God. Now, Father... So this is all his return into your hands I commit my spirit. He dies as a Christian. And what I mean by that is that he's trusting the Lord. Uh, and when he dies, he dies with confidence. Right? He dies the way each of us will die. When we die on our... It could be terrible. The death could be uncomfortable, painful. And yet, we'll be able to simply say, Father, into your hands I commend my, my spirit. And then he breathes his last. You can tell that the, thing, the horror of what he was going through based upon the way that he handles the last three things that he said. So from my perspective, I, I just think that that, just analyzing that course of events on the cross, provides, for me anyways, provides the most insight into the depths and horror of hell, the hopelessness of it. Because that's what he paid for. For us. So that none of us, if, if he's done, if he's taken all that away from us out of the cup of wrath, it means there's none left for us. O only for his good pleasure. Okay. I'll take questions. It's on. And so, after sitting through this lecture five years ago, 
Every time uh, we recite the Apostles' Creed, and we, I, I, I have a problem with it now. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, the order of uh, the words there doesn't necessarily follow what, uh, what you just said. Yeah, I sympathize. Um, year in and year out, I, I ask my confirmants, um, when, when did the Lord descend? I just ask, because I want to know what they think before I teach them. When did the Lord descend into hell? And they will say it was after he, after he died and then he rose. So it was during, on, like on Saturday. And that's wrong. I, we know it's wrong from Second Peter, Second Peter, because it said in his body he raised in his body, and in his body he descended into hell. It's 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 a slam dunk. That's the verse that we know this from. And so I deduce that the kids come to me with that confession because they've been saying the the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is not wrong, not in its content. It's just out of order. I, I, I admit, I wish it weren't. I confess the Apostles' Creed. I do it with a clean conscience. Um, but we just, I think I want to be honest with you that the order of the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell and the third day rose again, that order is not the Bible order. I don't mean to hurt your feelings or cause you any crises. Um, I think you can say the Creed. You just, at that point, you want to know that you're not, strictly speaking, confessing the order. Got nothing more for you. <laughs> Did you have your hand up? There. Um, so I, I have a comment and then thoughts so that you can flesh out. So I'm going to do the comment because it's shorter. Okay. Um, I had heard uh, years back that... Uh, that Jesus prayed Psalm 22 mm -hmm. to allow us to pray Psalm 23. And, um, and I think it was during Lent that I, I heard that. And anyway, that's, that's my first part. Don't comment on that yet. Okay, okay. Um, so what I do want, to, uh, want your feedback on, when you were talking about um, Lazarus and thirsting, and, and the rich man is asking for just a drop on his tongue. Um, there's just a lot that's there, and I don't know. I don't know when I'm reading it if I can think of thirsting in a literal water sense, um, because with our tongues we confess that Christ is Lord. Mm -hmm. That's what it's supposed to be used for. And he's confessing the opposite, right? And and so we're hearing this thirsting, and and Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that he's going to provide water that you'll never be thirst you'll never thirst again. Mm -hmm. And if the rich man is in hell without Jesus, without God there then there's a thirst for something that doesn't exist in hell. Yeah, you know, I think that's beautiful. I, I'm not sure it's right. Um, I, I, just because I don't know how to push that parable. And that if, if, because you're, you're, I think, pushing on it figuratively, which may not be inappropriate. You might be right. I'm just not positive you are. I, 
I don't know that to, I don't necessarily know to discount actual physical thirst in some way and how I just don't know. I think it could be physical thirst, but I don't know if it's physical thirst for just H2O. Sure, yeah, yeah, but certainly you're right. Psalm 22, the Lord is praying, why have you forsaken me? And then Psalm 23, um, thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Other uh, questions? Um, I have heard, um, I'm just curious on your take on um, the, his thirst and being, quenching that thirst with wine, correct? The, the sponge that is off the, uh, or? Yeah, I think so, but I, I, I'm not positive. I haven't done a bunch of research on this, but it, it seems like they might have mixed something with it to want, like mule, yeah, like, like a, uh, diluted wine or something to keep it pure. I, I'm not real sure. Right. I think it was meant for his thirst. Okay. There, there was something offered to him early, which would have been a, like a, what, a painkiller or a sedative. What was that? Um, something that was meant to dull the pain. Right. Which I guess tactically was a way that they sometimes would get people to relax so they could stretch them further. Right. And he declined that, uh, as that's told to me, for, his, for the sake of his mental clarity and his ability to speak. I don't know how much to make of that, but that's what I've heard. Yeah. I had heard, because um, obviously this is, you know, going back to the, the Last Supper, being uh, him being this sacrificial lamb for, you know, that fulfillment of the Passover that will satisfy all Passovers, you know, right. um, being that this, you know, he speaks at the Last Supper, um, doesn't take the fourth cup in the Jewish tradition. Um, you know, but the idea that he will not drink of the fruit of the wine or fruit of the vine until he's in the kingdom. Yeah. I'm just wondering if, it, to your perspective, if that is, and he said it is finished, I, I thir like after he takes that uh, quenching of thirst, is it the fulfillment of, oh. again, you know, our, it's kind of, yeah. So the, that last little sip of wine is like the fourth cup of the. That Passover. finishes the Passover sacrifice. Yeah, it's, I, I, don't, I don't know t if I would make that much out of it. Um, but my, I, it's a nice picture. I'm just wanting to try to be cautious um, and not take things too far. Um, but it's possible. I might be overlooking something there. Yeah. No, I just wasn't sure what you're I, I, It goes hand in hand, certainly, though, doesn't it, with the telestite, which is, uh, it is finished. Right. Yeah. And then the second point. Um, Everything, Passover. The right price, everything was finished. Right. The um, and I guess what in your estimation, or would you be saying, is finished? Because um, as our salvation, is it finished at that moment? Is that speaking of salvation, or is it speaking of uh, something different? Is our salvation made finished in His resurrection? Um, what is finished? Yeah, that's a great question. You, you opened up a, de uh, a, a decent debate that theologians are having. I think, it's, I think it's our entire salvation. I just think that the work of his salvation is complete on Good Friday while still on the cross prior to his death. 
uh, the, the resurrection is necessary and the Lord bestows gifts upon us at the resurrection according to Romans 4.25. He's put to death for our transgressions and raised for our justification. I think that the Lord bestows upon us things at his resurrection, but the work of our salvation is accomplished on the cross. The best example I've been able to assemble for this is a, is a, is a football as a running back at the line of, at the line of the end zone. Um, you know you, you have these kind of I-23, I-23, so you're, you're going to plow through the line, and the people are going to come up over the top, and the running back's going to push. And you, but he's buried in linemen, and he is across the line, so the work is complete, the football's over, the touchdown has in fact been scored. It's just that nobody, nobody can see it. So there's a point at which everyone's attention shifts from the pile and the running back and the pile to who? To the ref. Uh, we're looking at the ref, and the ref now, and, he'll, and soon he'll turn and go like this, when it's at this point that some important things happen. Number one, the crowd begins to cheer, because what, it's not like he's down there working still. The work is complete, but the crowd now knows it, and the score is credited to the, to the scoreboard. The points are given. So it's at the resurrection, according to Romans 4.25, when I, when I believe that, the, that, the, that justification is given to the Lord's people. But he, he doesn't have to keep working. That's, that's done. Thank you. Okay, we got a little bit of time, I think. So let's start out, at, uh, let's turn the, kind of the page to section three. Now, to heaven. As much as we can say about heaven, letter A, some basic uh, considerations. Two things to tackle. Probably number two here, Platonism and Gnosticism. This may be, maybe, maybe the most basic and maybe the most challenging. This, yeah, so we've turned a corner. We're here and up top. Well, here. We're here. So I'll say some things about Platonism and Gnosticism or just a little bit, in a, in a little bit, but I, I do want to suggest that, though, that there is some, philosophically speaking or worldview speaking, there's some ideas that we just inherit by being part of a culture that cause us, I think, to read passages of the scriptures in certain ways that are not merited by simply the scriptures themselves. I'll say more about that, but first of all, I, there's the, I'm just listing a few of the passages that I have found to be used by people who say there's not much we can know about heaven. I hear that all the time. I was just reading a little 12 or page something about heaven written by one of our really respected Missouri Synod pastors, pretty well known. I won't tell you his name. There's not really much of a reason for this, but I respect him greatly in his theology. And yet I read his, his treatment on heaven, and he says, you know, it's really, really important not to, to try not to say very much about heaven because it's beyond our imagination and beyond any of our conceptions. It'll be so much greater than anybody can even think about. So just stop thinking about it. It's amazing. And then out he trots, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. 
After all, he says, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. You can't imagine it. There's no way you can. You can't conceive of it. You can't imagine it. You, you, your, your ear can't, cannot hear it. If you were to look at the context, um, in fact, let's just do it, because we won't look at the, the, the other ones as closely, but I do want to look at this just so that you can see how this is used. My suspicion is that you've all likely read a book or heard somebody say that passage and then been told on the basis of it, don't try to imagine what heaven's going to be like. You're going against the Bible. You're going against 1 Corinthians 2 by doing that. So open up that 1 Corinthians 2. Is that really what it's saying? But we're going to get this, the context here. So I'm going to start at 1 Corinthians 2, verse number 6. That's the beginning of the section. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. You know what he's talking about in 6 and 7? What's the wisdom that we, Paul says, we, and he's referring to the apostles, that we impart? What is this wisdom that they impart? It's the wisdom of the gospel. Or, specifically in 1 Corinthians, the cross, Christ crucified, the wisdom of the cross, or the gospel, the word of God. That's the wisdom we impart. Verse number 8, no, 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 the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it's written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, please. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. He's talking still about the, about the gospel. You could not have conceived of the gospel. No ear has, eye has seen this, ear heard it. You'd have to be told the gospel. And says, Paul, that's what we're here for. We're revealing the gospel to you. Even if this was about heaven, Verse number 10 says, no, we couldn't have conceived of it, but God has revealed it to us. But it's not even about heaven, it's about the gospel. This verse has nothing to do with, with heaven. And I can't tell you how many different treatments I've heard unquestionably have this verse come out in reference to heaven telling us we don't, we're not going to be able to know about it. You can't know anything. That's false. At least from it not, you can't get it from this passage anyway. Next passage. Wrongly used, I believe. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. See, in this life, this, the way this is argued so often, in this life, we can't see very clearly. We only see di uh, dimly. Um, we don't fully know. It's nothing we can know. We're going to just have to what? Wait until we... We get there. Here's the trouble. I've studied chapters 12, 13, and 14 pretty in-depth in 1 Corinthians. They're a unit. Chapter 12, 13, 14 have to do with charismatic gifts. The Corinthians were using them. They were boasting of speaking in tongues and speaking in prophecy. Paul has to address this throughout chapters 12, 13, 14. 13 is one we're on right now. That's in the middle of these 12 through 14. It's all one unit. Paul, in effect, he has to say to them, listen, uh, you should not exalt yourself just because you can speak in tongues right now or speak in prophecies right now. Uh, what, that's not even really that important. 
And it's and most the most important reason that it's not that important is because it's merely temporary. I don't know if you're aware of this, at least I believe, I believe, that God gave speaking in tongues and speaking in prophecies to the first generation of the church during the era of the apostles, but that he has not but that he has not given that gift permanently in the New Testament. He gave it for a brief period of time. And that the purpose for giving those gifts for a brief period of time, speaking in tongues, prophecies, healings, etc. He gave those gifts in order to establish apostolic uh, authority in order to bring to completion the final revelation of God's will for us, and that's the Bible. The New Testament compiled with the Old Testament as the Bible. Speaking in tongues and prophecy were meant to endorse the apostles' authority. Now, it take me a while to argue this. Maybe next year we can I'll come back and we can try. But in chapter 13, the heart of what Paul is arguing is that speaking in tongues and gifts of prophecy just don't last. They're not meant to last. Whether there's tongues, they will, what does he say? They will fail, cease, better, cease. Whether there's prophecies, they will cease. These things are only temporary. In fact, they're, gonna, they're only temporary. What lasts is the gifts of the Holy Spirit, faith, hope, and love. Those three last beyond that apostolic era. Faith, hope, and love. The Holy Spirit will still give us faith and hope and love. There'll be a period he won't give us charismatic gifts anymore. And in fact, of the three, faith, hope, and love, only one of those three are going to last into eternity. The greatest of those is love. That's not because faith is greater uh, or that love is greater than faith or you, love is a better way to get salvation. Still, we're saved by faith alone. The reason he says love is greater is because it lasts for forever into eternity. We won't need faith and hope in eternity. So faith, hope, and love abide. But the greatest, the most abiding of the three is love. But I tell you, what does not abide, says Paul, is speaking in tongues and prophecy. Oh, those things are just temporary for a little while here until you can get your hands on the, on the Bible. The Bible will be clear for you. The Bible will be all that you really need at that point. And you'll rely on prophecies and speaking. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 13. Now we see in a mirror dimly. During our era, Paul's saying, right now, during this time before the Bible's complete, before the New Testament's complete, it's kind of dim. <clears throat> it's not like God the Holy Spirit's not speaking. He is. We just don't have the entirety of it yet. It's not all put into one. And, and, and that church over there has a couple letters, but they don't have all these rest of these letters. And that church has them. They have a little prophet, and he's doing some things down there, but they don't have... We just wait until we assemble this whole thing into one nice book. And then you'll have it clearly. That's what he's referring to. <coughs> Excuse me. We now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. Not talking about heaven. He's talking about the, about the scriptures. That'd be my contention. It might take me a little longer to argue that fully. But I think that's deeply misused. In context, nothing he's talking about has to do with heaven in context. So in fact, I think we can know more about heaven, and I don't think you can use this passage against that. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 is also used sometimes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. 
Uh, this is not about an ethereal spirits inheriting an unfamiliar heaven, but rather about sin-infected bodies unable to inherit the new heaven and new earth. Um, just a misused passage there. Let me uh, move to number two, Platonism and Gnosticism, tackling some common assumptions. I have a, a separate handout. If you could pull that, pull that up. I might as well use this as an opportunity to advertise the, um, at least a book what I, what, what that I've found to be helpful. I think I have it in here. I should have probably told you this up front. I've, over the years in thinking about this, have, have tried to keep up on a number of different sources and books. I told you I've been reading Gerhardt on these very, very subjects. Um, but the book that I've come back to again and again as, as quite helpful is this one by Randy Alcorn, if you're familiar with this. It's just simply called Heaven. Um, I think that, that Alcorn is, is really, really uh, good here. And I'm, I'm, in a lot of ways, I'm, I, I give a lot of my thinking and credit to what Alcorn is doing. Alcorn is a, is a reformed Christian, or he's a Calvinist, from what I can tell, just reading him. Um, which means he's going to be off on a few things. He's a millennialist, so he has this, uh, we wouldn't go along with his millennialism. The, the belief that there'll be a thousand year reign at the end of time. He is able to extract himself from that pretty fairly in this book. Um, it's also, since he's reformed or Calvinist, if you ever get this book, you just want to be aware that he does not have the genus myostaticum of the incarnation, of the, of the uh, communication of attributes. What, that, what I mean by that, the Calvinists have a hard time with the incarnation. They, don't, they do not believe that the divine nature and the human nature in Christ are fully communing with one another, and therefore they think that when, for instance, Christ died, they, do, they would not affirm with us that the divine, that you could say in any meaningful way that God died. You see, so a Calvinist would say, no, God did not die on the cross, because God can't die. Well, Jesus died. That was not a false death. And Jesus is, in every respect, fully what? Divine. I don't know if you're aware of this, but our book of Concord goes to extensive lengths to argue from the scriptures that it is appropriate to say that on Good Friday, God himself died for our, for our salvation. So if he didn't, then the divine nature came flying off from the human nature in order not to die. And the only, the only person that died for us really was, a, was an ordinary what? Human. An ordinary human dying for me is necessary, but it's not enough. So the, so the Reformed had this difficulty with, uh, with the um, incarnation and the communication of attributes. And for that reason, Alcorn sometimes um, will, what well, he affirms, that in heaven our bodies will be like the Lord's body. But he's really scratching his head all the time about how, so he, he'll say, for instance, now we see that the Lord walks through a door on Easter evening. And then he says, I'm not sure how we'll be able to walk through doors. That's strange. Human bodies don't walk through doors. We're not sure why it is that Jesus could walk through a door. Maybe we'll be able to walk through doors. I don't really know. Well, come on. The reason Jesus can walk through a door isn't because that's an essential property of humans. It's because he's God. It's just that he has a hard time wrapping his mind around that. 
So you want to just be aware if you're if you're if you're thinking about reading this or want to do more. This is a really, I think, a great biblically based book with the confusions that he has about uh, the incarnation and millennialism. That said, he is on it when it comes to what he calls, I think, uh, Christoplatonism. And this I'm just reproducing from his book, so I'm giving full credit here to Alcorn, about some assumptions that we oftentimes have about heaven and the heavenly life compared to what the Bible teaches about heaven. I just want to work my way through that. Do you have that, that single page, two columns? Okay, on the left-hand side, what we assume about heaven oftentimes is that it'll be a non-Earth environment. Like no gravity, no dirt, no trees, no stuff, no physical anything. But what the Bible teaches is in fact that we'll live on a, a new Earth. Not a non-Earth, but a new Earth. What we assume about heaven, unfamiliar, otherworldly, can't imagine it, beyond our imagination, can't conceive of it. What the Bible teaches is that, in fact, it will be familiar and friendly, or earthly. It uses all kinds of words that we're familiar with. It calls it an earth. If God says it's like a, it's a, that it's a new earth, that what that probably means is it's a lot like what? Earth. Why would he call it an earth, and then the actual thing is nothing like what we could imagine? Wouldn't, he's not going to use those sorts of words. What we assume about heaven oftentimes is it's disembodied or spirit, quote, spiritual, which means non-physical. But in fact, the Bible teaches it's resurrection, body, and embodied or resurrected. What we assume about heaven, foreign, and yet what the Bible teaches is it's something like coming home. Home is home because it's familiar. Leaving the fun stuff behind. What the Bible teaches, retaining the good, finding the best ahead. What we assume about heaven, no time and space. We've already addressed this, haven't we? No reason to assume that there'd be no time or space. I don't know anything in the scriptures that would indicate that, except a mistranslation of a verse at some point. I can't remember where it is. Every, all the descriptions of the new earth and the new heaven in the Bible assume some kind of passage of time, months, seasons, etc., days, and also space, cities, countries. All the language used points to space and time. What we assume, that it's static. Um, I think it was Aquinas who said, we'll spend all of eternity floating while we uh, uh, meditate upon the nature of God for all of eternity in an unchanged existence. That sounds pretty, what? Boring. When in fact, the Bible describes it as dynamic, changing, interesting. What we assume, nothing to do, floating on the clouds. You've got those pictures in your mind, clouds. In fact, the Bible teaches that we have a God to worship and serve, a universe to rule. A universe to, that's why the Bible's always talking about, we'll receive a, a crown. What's a, what's a person with a crown on doing? Ruling, it's rulers who have crowns. That's the vision of a crown is governance. Well done uh, you, for how you've handled with your uh, 10 denarius or whatever it is, 10 coins. I'll give you charge over 10 cities. I'll give you charge in heaven over 10 cities. So in some sense, governance. Purposeful work to accomplish, friends to enjoy. What we assume about heaven, no learning or discovery, instant and complete knowledge. What the Bible teaches, an eternity of learning and discovery. The uh, what we assume is that it'll be boring, the Bible teaches it to be fascinating. 
and interesting. Loss of, ah, this is good. The, the, uh, what we often assume, assume is a loss of desire. I thought for a long time until very recently. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say recently because I've been thinking about this for some years. But for a, I'll just say, a long time I thought that when we get to heaven, I, we just, I heard this all the time. When we went to heaven, when we get to heaven, I won't be hungry. That's clear. I won't be hungry. Why won't I be hungry? Because I won't have hunger anymore. I won't need, the body won't be spiritual. I won't need to eat. In fact, I'm reading commentaries all the time about Easter. Jesus comes back. What does he do? He eats in his body. The commentaries are quick. They fall over themselves to say, now, of course, he doesn't need to eat. Jesus in his risen body doesn't need food. He's just demonstrating for our sakes that he can eat and that his body is physical. But he doesn't need food. He could go days and days, months and years. He doesn't need food. He's a spiritual body after all. Who says he doesn't need food? Why would it be wrong to, ne to need food? Did Adam and Eve need food? Did they have food? Did they eat? Of course. Of course. Would Adam and Eve, if they went a couple days without food, would they get hungry? Yes. Would that be because of sin? No, that's not part of this nature of sin. Buddhism teaches that we should be working to remove our desires, to, to, to push them aside. Even our desire or our longing for our loved ones and so forth, that we should become disconnected from our desires. That's what Stoicism teaches as well. It shouldn't matter what you want and desire. Christianity does not, is not Buddhism in this way. Christianity teaches that we have purified desires that are satisfied. The reason that we'll be in heaven, or that we, that we won't be hungry in heaven, isn't because God takes our hunger away. It's because he supplies our hunger with, with food. Never-ending, endless food. Because, I don't know. It, she said, does, she, does he supply the cooks as well? Well, I'd hate to say that uh, some of you who really love cooking... I'd hate to say, well, you can't cook anymore. <laughs> and the absence of the terrible, uh, but the presence of the wonderful. So I just wanted to, that what, what, um, what Alcorn, and I believe correctly points out, is that this is an extension of Platonism, which comes into Christianity as a movement called Gnosticism, a false religion. Gnosticism is the teaching, if, I don't know if you're familiar with some of your nod in your head, Gnosticism is in effect the teaching that the soul of humans pre-existed their bodies in a wonderful, beautiful, heaven-like place, and that because of some evil force, like the Old Testament God or the devil, or it depends on how, what, which version you read, forced humans to have bodies and put them down into this ugly, dirty, physical environment. And that the goal of our current human existence, according to Gnosticism, is that we would be freed of this dirty, physical existence, free of our body, free from food, free from earth, free from all this stuff. And that we would then, in our souls, come detached from our bodies and float forever in an ethereal, airy kind of existence where we'll be finally happy. Right? That's Gnosticism which teaches that. That's not Christianity. Christianity teaches that my soul did not pre-exist my body, but that God created me body and soul designed to live together. That my problem is not my body. The problem that I have is my sin and sin's influences, original sin, and that salvation is to be free from both the guilt and the committing of sins so that I can live body and soul forever the way that God intended me to live, body and soul. That comes up directly against Gnosticism. My, my contention is that Gnosticism is gathering our imagination. This is a challenging book 
suggested it to you, though. It's by per, uh, Peter Burfink. He's a Missouri Synod pastor. Uh, the book is called Gnostic America. I'm about halfway through, so I can only recommend half of it so far. Um, but this book makes the essential argument that Gnosticism, which, uh, which sprung into existence very early on, maybe even in early forms in the New Testament, is being addressed in the New Testament, being addressed. But then really grips the imagination of people in the second century and the third century. He makes the argument, in fact, that it's always existed, that it sometimes goes underground and is blossoming in America today and is capturing American uh, devotion and thinking more than Christianity is. And that a lot of what we actually believe about heaven and reality owes not to the scriptures but to Gnosticism and we don't even know it. That's his argument in this book, if you're interested in that. Burfiend, B-U-R-F-E-I-N-D. It's called Gnostic America. It's challenging. Uh, this is not light reading, uh, but I think it's helpful. Please, uh, I don't know where our mic uh, might have gone. Okay, I'm 99% with you. <laughs> I have a question. That's good. That's a good percentage. <laughs> Revelation 21 tells us that death will be no more. What are you going to eat that would not die? I don't know. Certainly plants. Yeah. So there were things that Adam and Eve, the pre-fall, they would be eating, that they wouldn't die, fruits, vegetables. So the question on the table is, what you're really asking me, is will we be able to have hamburgers? Well, no, I'm not making the Taco Bell argument, but <laughs> but I mean, anything would have to die, including plants. Sure. I mean, on some cellular level, you're talking about death yeah. that doesn't exist. The in, the in the scriptures, there is a distinction in the life kind of quality between animal life and plant life. It's even noted in the actual Hebrew word um, animal life is described as nephesh, well, plant life does not have that. Human life is described as nephesh life. That's the word for soul. So there's a, there's, a, there's a distinction in the scriptures between plants and animals. So strictly speaking, the Bible would not say that plants die in order to feed us. That's, that's not really a possibility. I mean, maybe biologically you could say it that way, but meaningfully, they aren't dying. Animals do. That's a, more, that's a more challenging issue. I don't have a good answer for you on that. I have places in the Bible that suggest that we'll eat meat and wine in heaven. But I also know that the eating of meat is a product of the fall into sin. So I don't know how it's going to land. <laughs> Wish I did. I thought you were going to tell, tell me you weren't with me. 99. Okay. We're going to turn the page to the letter B, our heavenly bodies. We're past time for our break. It is 2.18 right now, and we're going to uh, take a break and resume. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, we can do that. We have, we have snacks for you all, but they're just not here yet. <laughs> you can only imagine. It's unimaginable uh, what it's going to be like. Uh, so okay, if you don't mind hanging on for 10 more minutes here, and we'll just keep on moving, and then when we get snacks, we'll break. Let her be, our heavenly bodies. This is the heartbeat of everything. 
Uh, there's nothing that's more essential, at least in the argumentation of the New Testament, from what I can tell, than the existence of our bodies and the full restoration of our bodies. Paul argues that in 1 Corinthians 15, it's just the heartbeat of our existence in heaven. Uh, aside from being with the Lord, both in, heaven, in this heaven and the next heaven. So let's say some things about our bodies in heaven. First Thessalonians 4, uh, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Uh, that's there just so that we can note we're talking about the last day, judgment day. And the dead in Christ will rise first. That can't be their souls, can it? It's got to be their bodies. So the bodies of Christians will rise. Now, now Paul's not talking about the bodies of unbelievers. We know that the bodies of unbelievers will rise. That's just not inside of his, that's not the question he's answering here. The question he's answering is because these Thessalonians were concerned they'd become Christians. They didn't realize that the, that the return of the Lord would be delayed. They thought he was going to come soon, from what we can tell here, and Paul's having to correct that. But apparently what caused them the most alarm is that some of their Christians died before the Lord returned. They asked Paul, hold on, hold on, what's, now what are we going to do? They died, and the Lord didn't return. Now what's going to happen to them? And Paul's task here is just to comfort them and say, no, no, the dead in Christ will rise. They'll rise. For, when he returns, they'll rise. He's teaching the resurrection. We assume that. They weren't. That's stunning for them. Then he says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds. That's a reference to judgment day. That's a reference to, um, uh, to, to our perfection of our body. What he's teaching here then is that there will be, quote, some of, quote, us who are still alive when the Lord returns. The us here, as you can tell, can't just be a reference to the Thessalonians or the people at the time that Paul's writing. He, now I can conclude from this, he's writing to the entire church for generation after generation after generation. He's referring to us, some of us, some of our people. It might still be 300 years from now. I don't know when the Lord will return, but some of our people will still be alive. Some of us will still be alive when he returns. In fact, our hope is that the Lord would return before we have to go through death. This day could, this line here could then come before the dot. In which case, he goes on to say, then we who are alive or are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. He goes on to say, comfort one another with these words, because they've lost their loved ones. They're, they're dear Christians. Comfort one another with these words. What? With what words? That our bodies will be raised and you'll have one another back again in the, in the resurrection. John 5, 8, uh, 28 29, words of the Lord. Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Uh, who's going to come out? Those who are in the tombs. So the bodies of, of the dead, not substitute bodies or something. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I already noted for you that that, that judgment on the last day would be, from what I can tell, would be based upon works, good works that we've done, pointing out these things in our vocation. And that this is the, the precise verse that I'm talking about, this and others. This also, 528 and 29, also teaches the resurrection of both Christians and non-Christians. Philippians 3, 21. 
he will transform our lowly body to be like unto his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our bodies will be raised. They'll be transformed, he says. But they will be raised. Will they be bodies? Yes. In what way will our bodies be transformed? I want to just point this out to you. I, d I did the, the work on the Greek, and, I, and now I'm, I'm kind of frustrated by the translation I'm seeing quite often. So try to lock in with me if you can, and it's after lunch. I have heard this passage quoted in some instances to argue that our bodies in heaven will be not like they are now. They'll be essentially different or spiritualized, or even substituted entirely for the body we have now. And this verse is used to argue that. He says, he'll transform our lowly body. All I have now is this lowly body. It can't even fly. It's only got two hands. He's going to transform our lowly body to be like unto his glorious body. His glorious body that can what? Go through doors and be omnipresent and fly around and do all kinds of things I never even would have thought a body could do. That's their argument. Our bodies will be essentially changed. My argument is that that's false. Our bodies will not be essentially changed. What will happen is that our bodies will be freed from the curse of sin. They will be the very bodies that we have right now. Hands, feet, arms, DNA, chromosomes, the whole thing. But without the curse of sin, that's how they're changed. And that's actually what Paul is teaching here in Philippians. Let me translate it. He will transform our lowly body. That's how it's commonly translated. The Greek says, the body of our humiliation. Paul is straightening up. The word for lowly in the Greek is a noun, not an adjective. Don't noun, don't adjectalize my nouns. If it's a noun, make it a noun. If it's an adjective, make it an adjective. I don't want your interpretation in a translation. I just want the words. Now, if it's a noun, then it has to be something like the body of our humiliation. That's a noun. What does that mean? What's the body of our humiliation? What is the body of our humiliation? What's that mean? What is our humiliation right now? Sin. It's a, that, that, I, that my hip hurts a little. Or that I have not as much hair? Or that in the last year or two, I'm, I find it much more easy to put on weight? That's not, that's, the, that's because of sin. It might even be because of sins I'm committing, but it's just the general curse of sin. That's, this is the body of my humiliation. I, that's, that's my sin that's causing it, or our sin in general. This body is to be changed so that it will be like unto his, not his glorious body. Like, oh, Jesus, your body is just so glorious. That's not, it's not an adjective. It's the body of his glory. What is the body of Jesus' glory? It's the body that he had after he's glorified, after he's risen from the dead. So our sinful body the body of our humiliation, will be like unto Jesus' body after his resurrection. That's the literal Greek here. What's his body like after the resurrection? 
From what I can tell simply, it's free from the effects of sin. So when he was put into the grave, he had slices all over his skin and injuries, and etc. When he's raised, he doesn't have those anymore. He has token injuries. He's got token injuries in his hands and feet and in his side. We think simply, and this is the way he uses them, simply to mark himself as the one who's purchased our salvation. But those scars are not essential to his body. And there's not, no sense that I can tell that we would have scars. Um, so our bodies, in effect, will be the bodies we have now, but without the, without the curse of sin. And that is what we get, if I can turn the page, page number 6, Job 19, 26 to 27. I'll read this, and then I'll, maybe I'll take some questions. But if you can look below, see number 3, where it says continuity with our present body. I'm going to tag in on that point here. That's the basic rule, I think, here, theologically speaking. This is the rule I've come to, continuity. Continuity is what the Bible is teaching. From, from this life to the next life, without the effects of sin. That's the main difference. There's a few other minor differences. The main difference is that sin is backed out. Everything we have now, back out sin. Everything now is what we'll have then. Continuity. And I get that from Job 19, 26 to 27, that famous Old, passage, Old Testament passage. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will say, he's talking in the present tense, but he's, he, this is a prophetic statement. I will know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. That's talking about a later day. I know on a, in a, at a latter day, that's the actual literal Hebrew, at a latter day, he will stand upon the earth. So I think this is referring to first, I, I, Jesus will rise from the dead on Easter, and then at a latter day, after that, Job is teaching, at a latter day, he will stand upon the earth. What's that latter day? The day he returns in his body, standing with feet, with, with a body. He'll stand on judgment day, and after me, now that's about him, now about me, after my skin has been thus destroyed, Job says, I know I'm going to die, my skin's going to be destroyed, uh, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me, or yearns within me. So on that latter day, when he stands on the earth, even though my skin has been completely destroyed, worms have eaten it down to, to ashes and dirt, yet in my flesh, in my body, I will see God. And just for good measure, nobody says it more clearly than Job. That's why I love this so dearly. My, I, I shall see him for myself no substitute body, the, this body, my eyes shall behold, and not another set of eyes. So the precise eyes that I have now, says Job, will be the very eyes that lay, that lay hold of Jesus on the last day, and not another set of eyes. So if you ask, you heard people say this before, maybe it's on the last day that, Lord, you know, my body will go, this, this one right here, my body will go into the dust, and then the Lord will give me a new body. He'll fashion up a new one, real, real good. It won't be this body. That is not, that's not the sense I'm getting from this. My sense is that he intends not to replace this body, but to restore this body. That's two different things, isn't it? Uh, and that the very eyes that will turn into dust will see him. Not a substitute body. I think that's important. 
had some questions. So maybe I'll take those now. I don't know where the mic ended up. Does anybody? Yeah. Oh, oh please. I could, guess I could have got that. Am I on? Ooh, you're there. Now I forgot my question. <laughs> this sounds to me like it's just, um, we're going to be like Adam and Eve. And, you know, same design, same earth, that sort of thing. Is any other changes, or is that pretty much what it's going to be? Not 100%, but really close from the Bible evidence. So the, the, yeah, I think you could have had the mic. Is, this going to, is it like Adam and Eve? I think, I think for the most part, yeah. And, and the reason for this is because God created Adam and Eve in a certain way, and his intent, God doesn't like to start over on stuff. God is not a scrap the project and do a different one kind of God. He is a redeeming God, a restoring God, a resurrecting God. That's why all these beautiful theological terms always start with the word re. It's to, to correct, to do over, to, 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 to um, resurrect and restore. So his intention is to give us back everything that was lost in the Garden of Eden, bodies, earth, everything. However, I th the way that God is, he's so gracious that it doesn't come as a surprise to us that he also intends to give us even, even more than that, but not less. He'll do exactly what... Adam and Eve lost, but give them even more. Yeah, rehab. Yeah, that's us. Rehab. But except for the rehab when we're done is even better than, than the original. <laughs> you wait. You wait. <laughs> uh, yeah, last question. So um, in making the switch from thinking about heaven is like, oh, maybe it's just God and nothing else. To thinking, oh, there are these other specific things that we enjoy. Do you think there's a danger there in maybe like idolizing the the gift or the creation yeah. more than the creator himself? I think so. Yeah, I think there's a danger. But there's a danger in every good thing. All idols are good. They said they're they're good. Money is good. I mean, so all the devil's doing is taking a good thing and twisting it in our mind. It is beautiful and good that, the, that we will enjoy mountains and earth and bodies and so forth on the last day and forever and ever. And I suppose, yeah, there's a, this danger of taking our eyes off of or not treasuring the gift giver, which would be wrong. I don't think that's a danger in heaven. It'll never happen. By glorifying, if I, if, I if I give gifts to my children um, and then they enjoy the gifts, the eyes light up. That's, do I say, hey, 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 hey. You aren't supposed to be focused on me. I'm the gift giver. Uh, no, I take delight when they enjoy my gifts. And when they enjoy my gifts, they're really enjoying me. Now, maybe there's a way they can say, Dad, get, get out of here. I'm going to go have, there is a way they can offend me that way. But it's so fair enough. But I'm not terribly concerned about it. I think the danger is in the opposite direction. That we would say, oh, Dad, I don't care about your present. Uh, I just want you, that's all. Oh, that, knock it off. I just gave you a present. Enjoy it. Have fun. Have a good time. Okay, speaking of which, we have uh, a break and snacks.
So we'll take, I think, what, 10 or 15 minutes? Let's get back here at 2, it's 2.35 right now. We're back here fine at 2, like 2.50. Probably 